Will you go with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning? Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And our focus this morning is going to be on verse 18 through verse 35. It's a passage in which John the Baptist sends some disciples of his to the Lord Jesus to ask some questions of him because John himself has questions about who Jesus is, about his ministry, about whether or not he really is the one who was prophesied that should come. And in response, Jesus not only gives him an answer, but also shows him an answer by way of miracle, by way of showing that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. Luke chapter 7, verse 18 says, John's disciples told him about all these things, referring to the miracles earlier in the chapter of Luke chapter 7. And so John, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a, gut, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your wisdom, for your eternal word. 
for the privilege and honor that we have to read, to meditate on it this morning. Father, as we think on these verses that we have just read, uh, may we come to know your son, the Lord Jesus, to a greater degree. May we understand more what you sent him to accomplish. May our faith be strengthened. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken faith in those whose hearts have not yet been opened to receive the truth of who Jesus is. Father, thank you for this time. May your spirit do his work among us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have ever been in a severe trial, then you know how much of a challenge to your faith that is. It causes you to stop and think about what you really believe about God, about who he is and about his faithfulness. When you're going through an intense trial, no doubt questions come to your mind. Questions like, is God really in control of this situation? Is God really good? Does God really have my best interests in mind? How is all of this going to work out for God's glory? Is God going to be faithful to me? And you may have had tinges of doubt running through your mind as you reflected on the troubling circumstances that were beating you down. And though many of us have had difficult trials, fiery trials, as Peter calls them in 1 Peter chapter 4, I don't know that there's any one of us in this room who have gone through the trials that John the Baptist went through. None of us have ever been sitting in prison awaiting execution by beheading. None of us. That's what John the Baptist was experiencing this time when he sent some representatives to go to Jesus to ask him these questions. John the Baptist was going through a fiery ordeal. He was going through a trial, a trial that seems to have been shooting darts at his faith and causing him to want some affirmation, to want some confirmation about everything that he had been preaching, about everything that he had lived his life for, about everything that his ministry had been about. And so he sent some of his followers to Jesus to ask. He was going through a difficult time, a time of trial. John the Baptist was a unique individual, wasn't he? John the Baptist was that fiery, rather odd-looking prophet who wore camel's hair out in the wilderness, wearing sandals and camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. And he's the one who said in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one that was prepared by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And he said, when he saw, uh, when he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, he said, there's someone coming after me who is greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He was speaking of Jesus. And when Jesus then came to be baptized by John, John's response was, 
you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. He put himself under Jesus because he saw his place of humility and his role of preparing the way for Jesus. And so John understood his mission and who Jesus was. But this is sometime later than that. Luke chapter 3 is John in the Jordan River baptizing people and proclaiming strongly, boldly, Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now some time has passed. And because of John's bold, unashamed preaching, he finds himself in prison, awaiting execution. John was a bold preacher. He didn't just give people what they wanted to hear. In fact, John was in trouble because he had spoken out against the marriage of Herod to Herod's brother's wife. And so John preached against that, showed how that was wrong according to the law of Scripture. And in response, Herod had him arrested, put in prison, and ultimately he would lose his life for that. And so John was in prison. According to uh, what we understand of the region of that time, John was most likely incarcerated in a dungeon known as the Dungeon of Macarius. It was a desert fortress palace perched on a desolate high ridge by the Dead Sea. The remains of the castle's dungeons can still be seen today, even the iron hooks. A more desolate, formidable place is difficult to imagine. And it was also there that John would lose his head in martyrdom for the sake of the truth of God's word. And so if your imagination is with you at all and active at all, you can understand why John needed affirmation. John needed strengthening of his faith. John had some questions. His faith is being tested He's in the midst of a severe trial and he's trying to sort out and piece together everything that he's been hearing about Jesus and his miracles. Because verse 18 says that John's disciples told him, that is told John about all these things. What things? Well, things like we've been looking at in the gospel of Luke, like Jesus healing a centurion servant, like Jesus raising a a boy from death and handing him back to his mother. John's disciples have been reporting all these things to John. And so John had heard all of these things. He had heard the teachings of Jesus. He'd heard about all of his miracles. Even while he's in prison, he's getting reports of what Jesus is doing. And all of that fits with John's understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. But where was the other part? Where was the other part? Where was Jesus judging ministry? Where was Jesus ruling ministry? Where was Jesus authoritative kingly ministry? Because this is what John said earlier in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John the Baptist said these words. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. When he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with 
fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John, in predicting the coming of Jesus, said when Jesus comes, he is going to baptize you with the Spirit. And he is going to baptize you with fire. Those are two different things. And those two things are applied to two different sets of people. To those who accepted the message of John, accepted the message of Jesus, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But to those who did not accept John's message and did not accept Jesus' message, they would be baptized with fire of judgment. That's the idea of the winnowing fork is in the hand of Jesus to clear his threshing floor to separate the wheat from the chaff. In other words, when John predicted the coming of Jesus, he not only predicted the the healing and the ministry of giving sight to the blind and and raising the the lame to walk again and, and everything that Isaiah 61 said about what the Messiah would do. But John also prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would be one who would judge. He would be one who would separate the wheat from the chaff And in John's reading of passages like Isaiah, one like we read earlier in Isaiah 35 in the the service this morning, or even Isaiah 61, these passages that talk about the coming Messiah who will give sight to the blind and give healing to the lame and raise the dead, those passages also talk about the vengeance of God on those who are evil. John understood those passages. And so I think one of the reasons why John has questions in his mind is because he sees part of what the Messiah was to be from Isaiah and the prophets. But where is the full part of who the Messiah is supposed to be? Where's the judging role? Where's where's him freeing Israel and restoring us to glory and throwing off the oppression of Rome? Restoring Israel to its glory under David and Solomon. And so John sends some representatives, two of his disciples, to go to Jesus and ask him, Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Last week we saw that after the raising of the dead young man in Nain, the people responded by praising God and calling Jesus a great prophet. But John's question to Jesus by way of his disciples shows that the crowd's perception of Jesus as a great prophet fell short of the target. John knows that Jesus is a great prophet. He believes he's the Messiah. He is asking his disciples to go and seek confirmation of that from Jesus himself. So when his disciples ask him, are you the one? They're not asking Jesus, are you another great prophet in the line of Elijah or Elisha? But are you the anointed one? Are you the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Are you the one of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 who would come and give sight to the blind and raise the dead? Are you that one or is someone else coming? And notice Jesus' response to the disciples of John. 
Don't you love Jesus' responses sometimes? Because Jesus often, very often, does not give the straight, simple, forward answer that people want. He gives them more. He gives them more. He, he helps them to see the bigger picture. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the one. Now go back to John. He doesn't do that. Look what happens in verse 21. Here they come. Jesus, are you the one? John sent us to ask you, are you the one? Or is there another one coming? And verse 21 says, here's Jesus' response to them. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. What was Jesus' response to the disciples of John? It wasn't even a verbal response. His initial response to them was, watch and see. You have questions of whether or not I am the one that Isaiah predicted? Well, let me show you on display exactly what Isaiah predicted. Because what did Isaiah predict? Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. When he comes, he will give sight to the blind. He will raise the dead. He will deliver those captives. He will preach the good news. And so Jesus' response to John the Baptist and to his disciples is this, look and see. And he healed all of these people. He displayed who he was. And then he replied in verse 22, now go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And in, in that answer of Jesus, he strings together quotations from Isaiah from at least four different places in Isaiah, putting together kind of a compilation portrait view of what Isaiah shows the Messiah will be. Here's what I just did. Here's what Isaiah says. Now, go back to John and tell him that. The only answer that Jesus gave was to go back and report to John what they had seen in Jesus' miracles and what they had heard in his teachings. The essence of Jesus' response is this. This is what Isaiah the prophet says the Messiah would do. You have just seen all of those things done. So I'm fulfilling those prophecies of Isaiah right now in front of your eyes. Go back and tell John that. And so Jesus sent John's messengers back to him with overwhelming empirical evidence, eyewitness evidence, and scriptural evidence to put those two together to, in essence, tell John, yes, he's the one. But he doesn't give the answer in so many words, does he? He says, let me show you and let the scriptures tell you. Now go back and tell John what you have seen. And then he says in verse 23, and I think here is, if we can kind of put the magnifying glass on a verse in this whole passage as kind of the hinge around what this whole passage swings on, it is verse 23. 
where Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The word that Jesus used there is scandalon, a scandal, an offense, a stumbling block, something to trip over. And it's a word that is used of Jesus many times throughout scripture. The idea is, here is Jesus, a rock. He's a rock. You can either build your life on him, or you can, be, you can stumble over him and stumble to your falling, to your demise. Verse 23 is a beatitude that calls for a response of faith. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Blessing belongs to the person that is not offended by Jesus. Who he is. Notice this. Not as we would like him to be. But who he is. In other words, Jesus' ministry might not meet all expectations. It might not have the powerful flair of position and status that the world might expect, but he has been sent from God. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and blessed is the one who does not stumble or fall away on account of Jesus, on account of who he is. I think the message that Jesus is teaching us in this passage is true faith will believe in Jesus even when Things do not happen the way that we expect or the way that we would like them. True faith will believe in Jesus even when things do not happen the way that we would expect or the way that we would like them to happen. Think about John. Is his life going the way that he expected or the way that, that he might like them to go? No. No. I think any sane person would say, this is not where I expected myself to be. And this is not what I would like to see happening to me right now. But here's the issue. Will John continue to believe? Even when things don't go as expected and when things don't go as we would like them to be. And that goes for who Jesus is too. Jesus is doing these miracles. He's preaching the good news. But where's the, where's the full fulfillment of everything that Jesus would be, the, the Messiah would be? Where's the judging ministry? Where's the, the ruling, the authoritative ministry? Where's the righteous vindication ministry of Jesus? It wasn't going, Jesus' ministry wasn't unfolding exactly the way that John expected There were elements of it there, but John had questions about where's the rest. And Jesus gives this message back to John. Don't be offended on account of who I am. Continue to believe, to trust. Blessed is the one who does not stumble or is offended or trip over who I am. I'm sure there are many times in our lives when God does not act in a way that we think is best or in a way that we expected him to act. But that's the funny thing about God, is he's God. And he does what he wants to do. 
God is never fickle. He is always consistent with his character, but sometimes he does things and plans things that we do not understand. And the question is, will we continue to trust him? Will we continue to believe even when those mysterious things happen? Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. After sending John the Baptist's disciples back to him, was such a challenging answer. Jesus wanted to make sure that those who were there saw that this, uh, this dialogue, this conversation, did not underestimate the importance of John's ministry. And so he says to everyone who is there, who is gathered, verse 24, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. A reed shaken with the wind is probably a metaphor of kind of an easygoing person. Someone who blows and shifts and kind of moves and he's easygoing, he's easy to get along with. That wasn't John. John was not a reed swayed by the wind. John was a mighty oak tree that did not budge in a hurricane. He stood strong on the word of God. He was a prophet who proclaimed the truth. And there were many people who believed him and responded to him and his message and and were baptized by him. But there were also many people who rejected him and said, this man is a lunatic. This man is crazy. He's demon possessed. What did you go out there to, to find? And I think what Jesus is asking here is kind of similar to the point that we're making in verse 23. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, People went out to the wilderness to see John with different expectations of what a mighty prophet of God would be. And no doubt some people, when they saw John dressed in camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey and had this leather belt wrapped around him, thought, who is this guy? This is not what I expected. And some people judge a book by its cover and they walk away. And they said, this isn't who I expected. And they didn't even listen to John. Other people listened to John and then were offended by John and offended by his message. But other people heard and listened and received the truth of who John was. There were some who became blessed because they didn't stumble over who John was and his message. John wasn't there to impress you. John wasn't there to suit your needs or your, your expectations. He didn't dress in fine clothes like you would find in palaces. He was there to do a mission, a mission sent from God to proclaim the truth and prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus said of him, he was more than a prophet. At the time of his birth, he says, uh, he was, Jesus says, of, of those born of women, there is not one greater. Meaning, at the time of John's birth, he was the greatest man yet born. Yet, Jesus says in verse 28, 
I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What is Jesus saying here? John, he says, John is the greatest prophet. Why would John be the greatest prophet? Because he had this unique role of preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus quoted from Malachi 3.1, I'm going to send my messenger before my face. That was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was fulfilling that role, preparing the way for Jesus. Can you imagine a greater role as a prophet than to be the one right on the dawn of the coming of the Messiah? Since Genesis 3.15, the word of God and all the prophets had been proclaiming that the Messiah was going to come. None of them saw him with their own physical eyes. John saw him. John leaped in the womb for joy when Jesus walked in the room, in Mary's womb. And John had the privilege of proclaiming, here is the one. The one that's been talked about for thousands of years. John got to introduce him onto stage. He's the greatest prophet. And yet Jesus says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The lowest person on the organizational chart in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. What does he mean by that? I could be wrong, but I think what Jesus means by that is John served as kind of a a transition prophet from the old age to the new age from the old covenant age to the new covenant age. All of these prophets, including John the Baptist, never got to see the full realization of what Jesus came to do. And that was Jesus came to give his life on the cross of Calvary, to rise from the dead, to ascend to the throne of God and sit at the right hand of God. None of those prophets, including John, got to see that with their own eyes. But for those who are in the kingdom of God, we now have the privilege of all of the full blessings of the new covenant age, including the indwelling spirit, including now all that we have been made a part of by the gospel of grace, taking everyone Jew and Gentile and making them one body in Christ. This is now the completed house, if you will. Sometimes we think, man, I would have loved to have lived in the days of Abraham or in the days of David, in the days of Moses. I would have loved to have lived in those days and seen those things. But Jesus says, greater is the one who's in the kingdom of God than all of those. Why? Because you are seeing and living the fulfillment. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Wanting to live in the old covenant age and be there with Abraham or David or Moses is like wanting to live in an unfinished house. It's there. You can see all the rooms. You can see the structure. You can see it unfolding. You know where it's headed. But you don't want to sleep in a house on concrete with open two by four stud walls, right? In a, that's kind of an analogy of the Old Testament. It, it, it's, it's coming. It's, it's in progress. It's moving toward an ultimate goal. You can see what's happening. But then Jesus came and died and rose again. And now the house is finished, if you will. 
And we have the privilege of living in this new covenant age. That's why Jesus says greater is the one in the kingdom of God. John, like every true prophet of God, had a mixed reception by the people. In Luke 7, 29 and 30, it says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Two very different responses to John and who he was. The common people, including the outcasts, like the tax collectors, they agreed with Jesus' pronouncements about John because they accepted John's ministry. They were baptized by him. But the Pharisees, the self-righteous, the experts in the law, who thought they had no need of repentance out of the message that John was bringing, they rejected what Jesus was even saying about John. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus' statement about him. And then Jesus makes, Jesus tells like a parable in the closing part of the passage that I think further drives home this point of verse 23. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. And he says in verse 31, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. What's Jesus saying here? He's using a familiar language, kind of parabolic language, but then he gives the point. Here's the point. Because John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. So they were the ones playing a pipe for John and expecting John to dance. John, we're playing a tune. You're not dancing to our tune. What's going on? But then Jesus, they're singing a dirge for Jesus. They're singing a a funeral dirge for Jesus. And Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and with sinners. And they say, what's going on? You're supposed to be sad and solemn. And of John, you're supposed to be cheerful and dancing. But what's the point that they're making? What's Jesus making? The point that Jesus is making is neither John nor Jesus fits everyone's pre-expectations about who they think God's servant will be. So for John, this doesn't match who I thought. Who is this guy? He's not dancing to our tune. Same thing with Jesus. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. They hated Jesus because he sat down and ate meals with tax collectors and with sinners, with the common folk of society with people that the Pharisees said were sinners and outcasts of society. Jesus sat down and ate with them and ministered to them. There was simply no way to please the religious establishment. They were confident in their own self-righteousness. They rejected anyone that did not dance to their tune. So they rejected John and they rejected Jesus because they did not fit their mold of either who a prophet of God would be or who the Messiah would be. Here's the lesson. There are many today who have the same response to Jesus in this sense. 
there are people who want to put God in a box. A box of their own making. They want a God, but they want a God that looks like their version of a God. And so they have this place, this box that they've made. And as long as God or Jesus fits into that box of their preconceived ideas of who God should be or of who Jesus should be, then that's great. Fit in my little box right here. But they don't want a God who is too holy. They don't want a God who is too righteous. They don't want a God who is too much about judging evil and sin. Their version of God is just a loving grandfatherly type God who just loves and accepts everyone and never judges anyone, never holds anyone accountable and just like a fairy gives everybody what they want. And as long as that's who God is, they're fine with that because that fits their mold of who God is. There are a lot of people today who like Jesus as long as it's Jesus in their mold in their box. And so they like Jesus saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They like Jesus when he says you should forgive others. They like Jesus when he says you should love others and love your enemies. And they like Jesus when he sits down and eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. But they do not like the Jesus who says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. On the outside, you're whitewashed, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. They don't like the Jesus who says things like that. They don't like the Jesus who says there are going to be many on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things and prophesy in your name? And he's going to say to them, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. They don't like when Jesus says things like that. They don't like Matthew 25, where Jesus says at the last day, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. They don't like when Jesus says things like that. They don't like when Jesus says, do not commit adultery. And if you divorce someone, except for unfaithfulness, you're committing adultery. They don't like it when Jesus says that. And so they want Jesus in their box. And so to tell a person in today's society, God loves you and wants to be your friend, their response is, well, that's nice, but I don't need God. I have plenty of friends. Or you tell a person in today's society, Jesus loves you and he died for you. They will say, that's nice, but he didn't really have to do that. He went to a whole lot of trouble for nothing. Why? Why would people say that? Why would they respond that way? They need the whole picture, don't they? They need all of who God is. They need all of who Jesus is. And here's the point that Jesus is making in verse 23. Jesus, as he is, as the son of man, as the son of God, sent from above to do the father's will, he is not going to meet your preconceived expectations. But blessed is the one who believes in him. Faith believes in Jesus, even when things do not happen the way that we expect or the way that we would like them. Faith believes in Jesus, even when he is not who we think he should be. Faith accepts Jesus for who he is. Faith trusts God for who he is. And that is a grace-given faith.
a faith that is not built on what we want or what we expect, but a faith that is given to see and to believe, to have our eyes open to see who Jesus really is and to love him and trust in him, even when he doesn't meet our full expectations of who we think he should be. God defines his own terms. Jesus defines his own terms. We don't define them for them. And so believe, trust in Jesus, and blessed are you if you believe and do not stumble over who Jesus is. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, Lord, rescue us from our preconceived ideas of what we think your word should teach. And help us to see and understand and accept what your word actually teaches. Lord, rescue us from our preconceived ideas of who Jesus as our Savior should be. And open our eyes and cause us to welcome and receive who Jesus is. as he is in his perfection and glory as the son of God. Father, I do not know anyone's heart this morning. Even my own heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Father, you know the hearts of everyone and you know the hearts that have been opened to receive the truth of your word and to receive Jesus by faith. And Lord, my prayer is this, that if there is someone here, child, adult, of any age of understanding, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to understand, to receive, to believe who Jesus is. And in so doing, receive eternal life and salvation. Lord, help us to go to a world that is lost and dying And help us to have the courage to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to not bend the gospel or change the truth to suit people's expectations. But may we be like John, faithfully delivering the message of truth, regardless of what the consequences may be. May we be found to be faithful servants and messengers for you. Lord, bless us as your people as we seek to apply this truth, this word of God to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.